the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. From the book of the Acts of the Apostles, beloved in the Lord, we learn that St. Paul was imprisoned in the city of Caesarea for two years. Somewhere in there was the year 60, somewhere in there. Now he was in prison because the Roman governor in that city, a man named Felix, was hoping Paul would bribe him to obtain his release. Here's what the text says. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid. And he answered, go away for now, in the sense of go back to your prison cell. Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will summon you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So Paul must spend two years in prison waiting for trial. During those two years, Paul's friends and associates were permitted to visit with him, apparently as much as they wanted. The text says, so Felix commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty. I don't think that means he gets out. I don't think that means that. And told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Now, what happens when you take a man as active as Paul and put him in prison for two years? Particularly if his friends are allowed to come and visit him. Well, what happens, of course, is that the prison cell of Paul in Caesarea becomes the hub of the mission work. During those 
two years, Paul wrote three of his epistles, one of which was the epistle to the Colossians, which we heard this morning. Who were some of these friends who came to visit him and look after him? What I'm trying to do is place this morning's reading in a context. Very often when we read Paul, it's very extremely theoretical, very theoretical, it's quite abstract. It's not unlike the Gospels, which are things are always tied down in the Gospels. But in, in epistles of Paul, one has to do a little research. And that's why we have the book of Acts. There seemed to have been a great deal of traffic going in and out of Paul's prison cell. Here's how the letter begins. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, co-author, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from this verse, we learn that Timothy was with Paul at the time. Who else was with him? Let's look at the end of the epistle. Here's what we read toward the end of the epistle. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. Tychicus is there. He's the one who's going to carry the letter back to Colossae. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, everybody remember who Onesimus is? He's the runaway slave. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all the things that are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the relative of Barnabas, and Jesus, who is called Justus. Epaphras, who is one of you, a slave of Christ, greets you. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Get the picture of Paul's prison cell. It's, it's probably one of the highest concentrations first-class missionaries ever assembled in one place in the history of the church. <laughs> anyway, the prison cell was a very busy place. Think of those missionaries who were gathered there at one time. Mark and Luke, two future gospel writers. <laughs> there. Along with Timothy. Tychicus, Epaphras, and the others. Now that's the context in which Paul wrote what you listened to this morning. With regard to the text itself, let's look at three points. 
First, the Christian is obliged to be a non-conformist. We have to take that very seriously. A Christian is obliged to be a non-conformist. Those of you with children in school, I'm not talking about the homeschoolers because they don't have that problem quite so much, are quite accustomed to your child coming home and asking permission to do this or that or something else because everybody at school is doing it. The peer pressure on kids is enormous, just enormous. I've been, I've been here in the ministry in this place for about a quarter of a century now, maybe a quarter of a century in July. And I don't remember how many times I've heard that. Everybody is doing it. Everybody's doing it. So there's pressure on me to adopt this. It's on children mainly. By the way, some of those that I'm thinking of, children are out of church by mid-teens. Gone. Just gone. The Christian is supposed to be a nonconformist. When I think of the social pressures that are put on Christians during the last, well, let's say, three or four years since, since that stupid disease came along. All the pressures are put on Christians to adopt everybody else's perspective. What was everybody else's perspective? That the worst thing that could happen to you is that you die. Because that was the guiding philosophy, <laughs> politically, socially, that was the guiding philosophy in the last several years. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you die. When I think of all the things that were killing people's souls going on during all that time, and everybody was worrying they might get a disease. And I think almost everybody in the parish got it. And how many of you died? But there was the obligation to conform. Unfortunately, the leadership of the church went along with this. But you see, the Christian is obliged to be a nonconformist. It's supposed to be a really easy task to pick out the Christians in any society because they do not live like the rest of society. They refuse to do what is expected of them. And this is why it is so easy for the government during times of persecution to pick out the Christians. The Christians stood out. You could tell who they were. I've taken just that one example of the conformity for the, the, for the COVID. That's a, that's, a, that's a flimsy example and not barely worth mentioning. It's certainly not the worst thing. The conformity to that is not the worst conformity of which we've been guilty the last several years. How many of you here really expect 
a political, a political solution, a political solution to what we're, we Christians are facing now. Anybody here expects a political solution to what we're facing now has to be very, very foolish. We're way past any political solution. And the forces of conformity in our society are overwhelming. I see, the, I see evidence of it all the time. Now, in this morning's text, Paul speaks about this. Paul speaks of fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Of these things, the apostle goes on to say, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming upon the children of disobedience. In these, you once walked when you lived in them, but now put them all away. What are we putting away? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and foul talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. The Christian must be a nonconformist. Christian must not fill his head with filth. When I think of what is offered as entertainment these days, I'm thinking of particularly electronic, what is offered as entertainment, it is foul. You would no more bring that into your soul than you would put something poisonous into your body. The Christian must not conform to this world. He must be transformed in the newness of his mind. Point two, this moral struggle is a fight to the death. The traditional verb used for Christian asceticism you heard this morning, the subdeacon, subdeacon read the, the text as it stood this morning. The verb is mortify. You hear that word this morning, mortify. Mortify is a combination of two Latin words, mors and facere. Literally, to make dead. We are to kill certain things in ourselves. Certain things in ourselves must die if we are to live in Christ. Now, the Latin word moors is the root of certain other cognates we will readily recognize. Mortal, mortuary, and morgue. Paul is writing in Greek, of course, and not Latin. But his expression in Latin and Greek is just as strong is the aorist imperative verb. 
necrosite. It's interesting that it is an arist imperative. He's talking about something you do and get it over with. Do it and get it over with. Necrosite. Resolve to die. Or rather, resolve to kill. The Christian life, beloved of the Lord, does not mean living life to our full potential. Try to find that expression anywhere in the Bible. Live your life to your full potential. We hope there will be happiness in the life of the gospel, and there should be. But nowhere in the Bible is it suggested that the Christian life will be fun. Jesus speaks explicitly about the cross. It's not easy to live by the Sermon on the Mount, heaven knows. The joy of the gospel life, beloved in the Lord, comes from union with Christ. It has nothing to do with what the world calls personal fulfillment. That's the philosophy you would see something like a magazine that's actually called Self, the name of the magazine, Self. It's another version of the magazine that's called People. Oh, God. <laughs> you want to know something? This is not even my text. And I'll probably hear from the bishop talking about it. No, I'm just kidding. The bishop won't allow it. I asked myself, has anything happened since the beginning of this year from which I could take comfort and encouragement? Has anything happened in the public sphere? In the public sphere. Certain, certain in our personal life, yes. But the public sphere, has anything happened? Has there been a single Orthodox patriarch beside our own, John X, who has given me any reason to be a Christian? Has there been any other major church leader who's given me any reason why I should be a Christian? Certainly not the Pope. I can think of one thing that's happened this year, and it happened at a football game. Happened at a football game. <laughs> I wasn't even watching the football game. <laughs> I got it on the news. I wish I'd been watching the game, but of course it was a short game, wasn't it? You all know the game I'm talking about. Where a young player, 24 years old, has a heart attack right on the field. And what happened within minutes? Both teams are on their knees. <laughs> Both teams are on their knees in prayer. <laughs> that's the best thing that's happened in the Christian life that I can see in public probably in a decade. We could all see it. Men of faith on their knees on the ground praying for one of their, one of their teammates. Uh, this is not even in my, in my notes, as I say. Uh, 
Anyway, that was a freebie. I, you know, I didn't. I, <laughs> in, case, in case it seems I'm getting too discouraged. Okay. The, the model from this, I, I suppose, is watch more football. I don't know that that's... <laughs> The gospel life, the joy of the gospel life, comes from union with Christ. It has nothing to do with what the world calls personal fulfillment. Now third, and this is the key to the whole thing. Christians are to live in and for Christ. If you saw in this morning's epistle, it's a life of hope. Paul says today, when Christ, our life, appears, hotan ho Christos, if I rothi, ho zuin himon. When Christ, our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But you notice that word appear, appear. Ephanerothi, Ephanerothi, appear. Ephaneroo means to make an appearance. The font of the gospel life is our communion with Christ, who becomes the focus of the soul and the source of its strength. I hope everyone listening to me today, at least anyone who has reached the age of 18, has read the seven letters of Ignatius of Antioch. I remember reading them, those seven letters, for the first time when I was 18 years old. And I remember I could hardly get through them I found them so deeply moving. <coughs> this man who was raised in the church of Antioch. Can you imagine what it was like being a little boy being raised in the church of Antioch? He eventually became the second bishop of Antioch. A little boy being raised in this church at Antioch. Who were, who were the people at Antioch who was being raised? Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and all the others. A little boy being raised in that atmosphere. I read the letters of Ignatius of Antioch shortly after I turned 18. It was one of the most moving experiences of my life because he bears his soul, and in his soul one sees his communion with Christ. Now, if, you, if any of you adults here have not read the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, let me mention Father Andrew here's confessions before and after Vespers. <laughs> if, as I hope, you have read the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, you know that he was a fanatic. Fanatic. Let me mention that this word comes from the Greek root meaning to appear. 
And that word appeared twice in this morning's epistle. Hoton ho Christos, ephanaphanarathia, when Christ appears, hozui himon, our life, toti tehimis, sinafto, phanarathisathe, and doxi, you will appear in glory. What is a fanatic? A somat fanatic is somebody who has seen something. It's shortened, by the way, to fan. It's a shortened word. Shortened word. Fanatic. A lot of effort to say fanatic. Just say fan. A fanatic is someone who sees something. And he's regarded as a fanatic because the other people don't see it. The only kind of Christian to be beloved of the Lord is a fanatic Christian. Embarrassingly fanatic. Someone who regards all of life from a single line of reference. Now such a one was Ignatius, the second bishop of Antioch, our spiritual father, as Antiochian Christians. When the Roman government went about rounding up the Christians at Antioch in the year 107. They had no trouble spotting Ignatius as one of them. He was arrested and sent to Rome, where he was eaten by lions in the amphitheater. I don't know if I could even think about that. Lions eating me alive. In the course of his journey to Rome, under armed guard, Ignatius wrote to the Christians at Ephesus. And I read you these lines by way of commentary on this morning's epistle to the Colossians. The last times have come upon us. Let us therefore be of reverent spirit and fear the long-suffering of God. For it tends, that it tends not to our condemnation. For let us either stand in awe of the wrath to come, or show regard for the grace which is at present displayed. Either of these. Only let us be found in Christ unto the true life. Apart from him, let nothing attract you. Amen.